just a few moments I'm going to read to you from the book of Deuteronomy. But as we gather today, all of us are pursuing something. Whether we're pursuing comfort, whether we are pursuing affirmation, there's some shiny thing that all of us are pursuing, whatever that is. And when we gather for worship, we are being reminded that God is pursuing us and that he moves heaven and earth, that nothing can stop him from pursuing his people. Listen to this. There is none like God who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. I'd love to look with you this morning in the book of John, chapter 6. If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn there. Remember, this year we're thinking about life with Jesus. And what does that mean to be, to have life in Jesus? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What is it like? Um, we're spending this whole year thinking about that through the Gospel of John. So we're in chapter 6 of John's Gospel, and then in the summer we'll take a little break and look at the Sermon on the Mount, and then in the fall we'll pick back up around John 12 and go through the end of the book. So we're in John chapter 6 today. I'm gonna, we're going to look at, um, we're going to spend one more week after this in chapter 6. So there are things I'm not going to talk about today that we'll come back to next week. But this week I'm going to read verses 22 through 27. And then verses 48 through 59. So you'll see the whole section printed there in your bulletin, but on the screen should just be the passages, the verses I'm going to read. So 22 through 27, 48 to 59. This is God's Word. What I'm about to read to you, the Bible is not basic instructions before leaving earth. What I'm about to read to you is the language of our hearts. This is God's Word to the deepest part of who we are. Listen to this, John 6, beginning in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd remained on the other side of the sea, saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum. Seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father, has set his seal. Then starting in verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
For my flesh is, to, is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of, of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these stories. Holy Spirit, we thank you for guiding men to write down these stories so that we might read of truth and understand who Jesus really was. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you didn't spare your son, that we might find grace and hope, that you would declare to the world there is good news for us to hear. So as we look at this story and continue on, we pray that you would teach us more about ourselves, convince us more and more of who we are, and that you know us better than we know ourselves. And in doing that, would you please continue to bring us to Jesus afresh? that we might find our life in him. Jesus, we pray this in your name. We pray this in confidence. We pray this because you're alive and you care about us. Amen. Last week, we looked together at the first part of the story in John chapter 6. We looked at the first 21 verses in which there are two stories that we talked about. The first was the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, which actually ended up being probably more like feeding 10 to 20,000. And then the second story we looked at was uh, after that was over, the feeding of the 5,000, after that was over, the disciples got into a boat and headed to the other side of the sea at night. And it was there that they ran into a storm, and the story was about how Jesus calmed the storm and made the storm go away. And the point of the first 21 verses and the point of those two stories is to remind us that Jesus is always pushing us to realize our helplessness. He's always pushing us to realize our helplessness. And by doing that, he's interested in making himself larger in our lives. He never minimizes the storms that we're in. He is always maximizing himself in us. And... There are times in which Jesus is actually even greater in us through the storm and because of the storms of life. Well, we're continuing that story today as we look at these verses together. And there's something that we need to recognize and admit as we look at this story. You look at your bulletin, you see I got two points there. The first one is telling us that there's something that we need to admit. There's something when we look at this story that we need to recognize and we need to be willing to affirm, and it's this, that we often crave the gifts more than the giver. We are bent toward craving the gifts more than the giver. Here's the story. As you read back through these first few verses, 23 through 25 or so, what you find out is this. Jesus and his disciples cross over the sea. They actually make it to the other side during the night. And the next day, the sun comes up. And the crowd that has just been fed this food by Jesus, miraculously, this crowd realizes that Jesus isn't there. They realize that the disciples are not there. 
And so they get back in the boats. And they get in the boats and they travel to the other side. They end up in this little place called Capernaum. If you look in verse 59 of what we read, you realize that Jesus begins to address them in the synagogue in Capernaum. So they landed on the other side of the sea and they started wandering around trying to find Jesus and his disciples. And he finds them. Excuse me. And they find him. And they say, Jesus, how in the world did you get here? And he said to them, you are here seeking me because your belly is full. Look at verse 26. You're not seeking me because of the sign, but because your belly is full, because you tasted and ate all the bread. You're here for that reason. And then he says, don't labor for the food that perishes in verse 27. Actually labor for the food that leads to eternal life. You see, they go to the other side to find Jesus, and they're looking for the wrong thing. They're looking for something else. It's something that we have to recognize and admit as well. We often look for the wrong thing. We always, almost always, crave the gifts more than the giver. And we do it in all kinds of ways all the time. Think about it. You remember being a teenager? You remember being a teenager? Can you think back that far? Do you remember going back to your parents back when you were a teenager and just going up to your parents and being, keys, dad, where are the keys? Mom, where are the keys? Got to go, where are the keys? Or going up to your parents and saying, I, just, I need $20, just give me some money. We're wanting the gifts, not necessarily the giver. I need your car, dad. I need your money, dad, because I need to go do something on my own. Remember those times? How about this? Do you remember the times in which you would go with your parents somewhere and then you were embarrassed to be too close to them? You didn't want other people to see you being that close geographically, that close in proximity to your parents? You remember that? It was embarrassing, you know? Now look, there can be all kinds of reasons for that that are valid. I get it. You might have had really dorky parents or something. I'm joking. There can be all kinds of good reasons for those things. But at rock bottom... Weren't we as children kind of bent, weren't we as teenagers kind of bent toward wanting the things of our parents without really like having to engage with our parents? I mean, when we had something against our parents, it was a whole lot easier to just act like we just wanted what they could do for us and following the rules that they wanted rather than actually engaging and talking and expressing concerns, right? Even when we were young, we know what it's like to crave the gifts more than the giver. I talked with John Paul this week, and he told me this amazing story. You're going to have to get more details from him. But he told me this amazing story of going to a wedding in Atlanta. And this wedding was pretty amazing. Some folks had rented some property around Emory University. They rented an outdoor space, and I think they also rented a building that they could use for the reception in addition to the outside. And at this reception, this is what they offered at the reception. This is what they had available for those who attended this wedding. Prime rib, cedar plank salmon, roasted chicken, a potato bar. For dessert, 12 different kinds of cakes, a cigar cigar bar, an open bar. Sounds pretty amazing, doesn't it? I would have liked to have gone to that reception. Would have liked to have that reception at my wedding. But here's the catch. 
If you arrived five minutes late, you missed the ceremony. Think about that. Yeah, the party was great. Yes, the reception was amazing. Yes, you could spend hours in there with the live band and eating everything you could, exploring 12 different kinds of cake, enjoying cigars if that's your thing, enjoying whatever it is, enjoying all of that. But yet, if you were there five minutes late, you missed the ceremony. Like it left this taste in John Paul's mouth as if thinking, you know, that whole ceremony thing was just kind of a little formality, you know? Like the thing that is transcendent and is explaining how God loves sinners. That's what marriage is picturing. Jesus and his life laying it down for his bride. And these two people are willing to say, we need that. And what Jesus has done for his church is how we have to try to live. What Jesus has done to his church is the reason why I might be willing to say I do to someone. But if you got there five minutes late, you missed it. It kind of leaves you with this sense of they were more interested in, you know, the gifts and the party that we're going to have rather than the God who ordained and set all of this up in the first place. You ever realize in your own life how you're more bent toward wanting the gifts than the giver? I mean, you've probably heard this idea before. It's probably no shock to you at all. We've talked about this before for sure. And you might even admit that this is a struggle in your life. But have you ever thought about why? Have you ever thought about why we are this way? Why, when, when the crowds crossed the sea to the other side, why they were just going to Jesus to see if he could do something else for them? Have you ever thought about why we are this way in which we just want gifts and not the giver? Here's one reason why. Sin so dehumanizes us that we turn everything into a commodity. You know, I know sometimes when you've heard people talk about sin, they just talk about it in terms of behavior. And yes, there are sinful behaviors, but there are also sinful thoughts. There's also a power of sin at work within us. And one of the things that sin does, it expresses its brokenness and what it does to us by dehumanizing everything. That's the effect of rebelling against God, is we end up thinking at our core I just want the gifts, not the giver. I want to turn everything into a commodity. Think about these things. Marriage. This is how we can think of marriage as just a commodity. Yeah, I want, I want to be together with you. I'd like to get together with you so that you can fulfill me. And, and you need to change what you're doing, whatever that is, for the course of your marriage so that things are good for me. And if we're in this too long and you're not doing what I want, I'm out. Sound familiar? You ever thought about parenting itself? How many of us have been tempted and giving in to the temptation of finding our value and our worth in our children? Therefore, if they do something wrong in public, we are devastated. 
If people find out that our children have done something wrong, we are devastated. If people find out that our children do something great, we are elated and feel like we have done everything right. You know that feeling? We've turned parenting into a commodity. Kids do what I want. Everybody respects them. They think I am better as a human being and a better human being than others. If my children ever do something wrong, especially if they do something wrong in public, especially if people find out about it, we're devastated, crushed, as if our whole world is coming crashing down. You ever thought about how we view sex and pornography? You realize that pornography doesn't show too much, right? It shows too little. It reduces everything down. It reduces sex down to an act, a meaningless act, a self-centered, self-serving act. And then the thought is, well, I can walk away unscathed. Everything will be fine. It's a commodity. You ever think about how we turn our careers into a commodity? This is how we can make ourselves look good. This is how we function in the workplace. We think more about our responsibility. Excuse me. We think more about our rights than our responsibilities. So we end up just focusing on what we should get for what we do rather than figuring out how to do our jobs and fulfill our responsibilities more effectively to the glory of God. How about place? We turn place where we live into a commodity of things that we can just consume. We don't often think about the overarching well-being of where we live. We just want to consume and take and take and take. I remember when I first realized that I wanted the gifts more than the giver. Someone's alarm's going off, isn't it? Sorry about that. I know it's going to be a distraction. Just hang in there. I'll try to focus too, all right? So let's try to be together on this. I remember in my life in which I realized that I craved the gifts more than the giver. I was in college and I was reading a book that is now almost 500 years old. And I was reading this book and this book was extolling in this chapter how great God is, how amazing he is, what he has done with our sin in Jesus. And he ended up saying something along these lines. That someone who genuinely loves God, genuinely is devoted to God, would fight against sin and rebellion, even if there were no thought of hell. That blew my mind. Because I've been thinking about obeying God because I wanted certain things from God. And I thought about, man, I better not disobey God because I was thinking about the consequences, ultimately, hell of disobeying, you know? It didn't dawn on me that everything in my life with God was oriented toward, I just want the things that he can provide. I don't really want God, I just want heaven. But you see, if God isn't there, it's no heaven. I realized I had to change the way I was thinking and operating. I had to think through why I was doing what I was doing. I had to think through, did I want God above everything else? I wanted him more than anything else. Well, that's something that we need to recognize and admit. That we oftentimes want the gifts more than the giver. 
But there's something in this passage for us to take in. There's something for us to internalize. As you see in the bulletin, there's this idea of digestion here in these verses. The gospel is about digestion. Taking Jesus in is about internalizing Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 35 and 48. I am the bread of life. Look at what it says in verse 51 and 58. Jesus is saying, I am living bread. Look at what we read together in verses 50 through 58. In every verse in 50 through 59, except verse 52 and except verse 59, every verse is telling us that we are supposed to feed on Jesus, eat and drink. Every single verse, every one. You see, there is an analogy that God is trying to communicate to us. There's an analogy between believing and eating bread. There is an analogy between believing and feeding on Jesus. We actually were made to relate to God like thirst to water. We actually were made to relate to God like hunger and food. Because our thirst and our hunger are both driving at deeper realities of who we are. Our hunger and our thirst are getting at the deeper things of our soul. They're physical pointers to the needs of our soul. And Jesus is saying, without me, without me, you will starve eternally. Without me, you will never be fully, completely satisfied. Without me, you won't really even understand what it really means to be thirsty or to be hungry. Without understanding who I am and taking me in, you'll have a thirst that just keeps coming back. You'll have a hunger that just keeps coming back. And both of those are meant to drive you to me. You see, to believe, to be a follower of Jesus, is to take him in. The message of Christianity is not that we just get a new set of morals and a new, a new uh, lease on life. It's that we take Jesus inside of us. We take him in to the deepest parts of our being. Have you ever thought about what actually happens when we end up craving the gifts more than the giver? You ever thought about what our relationship looks like when we just crave the things that he can give rather than craving who he is? What ends up happening is that our relationship with God just becomes an arrangement. What happens is that our relationship with God just becomes transactional where we're always bargaining with him. If I do this, then God, you will do that. It's why there's so many times in which we feel like suing God for a breach of contract. You ever had those times in your life? You've done all this stuff and something doesn't go right. And you, God, I did my part of the bargain. Why aren't you doing yours? You said this was going to happen and I did everything I was supposed to do and this didn't happen. You know that feeling in which we want to sue God for a breach of contract? That is revealing that we want the gifts more than the giver. It's a reality that we, it is expressing the idea that we thought that we could put God in our debt. That we just thought he was the best way to control our lives and the best way to get what we think we want or should have. But when you take bread 
into your body? You know what happens. Energy is released. It gets into your bloodstream. It circulates throughout your body. And that energy explodes and allows us to move. It influences what we do and how we do. It influences everything. It is empowering to us. You see? What Jesus is saying is that if we believe, meaning if we take him in, if we take him in, then the power of the cross and the power of his resurrection control our lives. Jesus is not a means to an end, whatever end that is. He is the thing. It means that he comes into our lives and he controls us. And what that looks like is that for the first time in our lives, we begin to struggle with sin, and that's good. It means that through the cross, And because of the resurrection of Jesus, we actually have power to put sin to death and fight sin. It means that we have new loves. It means that we have new desires. It means that we're not as concerned about ourselves anymore. And we're not as concerned about power anymore. We're concerned about others. We're concerned about other people. It means that we are willing to be inconvenienced instead of always wanting our agenda It means that in our lives, we're actually open to being stretched in new ways and learning brand new things. It even means that suffering isn't meaningless, that suffering is important. It means it's how Jesus is getting into us, how powerful and how gracious and how loving and how big he is. It means that when the power of the cross and the resurrection come into our lives, We start listening to God and his word. And what he says means more than anything else. It's our supreme authority. It means that our lives are being shaped by Jesus. It means that the way he lived becomes the pattern of our lives. It means that every day we are thinking about the gospel and everything that we're doing. It means that we're running everything in our lives through Jesus through his death and through his resurrection, that we're thinking about repenting and believing. You see, there's an everydayness to eating. There's an everydayness to putting on Jesus so that we look at everything through him. If you're a follower of Jesus, what has he been teaching you? What has he been working into your life? What are the attitudes that he's changing? What are the priorities he's rearranging? How is he affirming his love for you? Or do you always feel like that you're the one who has to prove your love to him? How are you receiving his love? How are you hearing what he is saying to you in his word? And how is that affecting the way you look at your job, your children, where you live, your relationships, your neighbors, your friends? What is he doing in rearranging your life? You know, I guess we can boil all this down to this one question. How do you know that God loves you? How do you know that God loves you? If you were asked that question, how do you know God loves you? How would you answer it? My guess is, if you're like me, oftentimes you want to answer it this way. Well, I know God loves me because he's blessed me so much. As I look back through my life, I see all these blessings, and that's how I know. 
A look at the things he provides for me. A look at how he's provided for me in the past. Not just been with me, but how he's provided. Think about my family. Think about my job. Think about people that he's put in my life. Those would be the answers that I would give you. How do I know that God loves me? And those are good. And those are right answers to a certain extent. But let me tell you, they don't really get at the heart of the matter. They don't really get at the core of what it means and how we know that God loves us because when we are in the storms of life and we feel like our lives are being ripped apart at the seams, you know what really indicates to us that God loves us? Jesus died. That's how we know God loves us. Jesus died for you and for me. That is how I know the love of God. When I'm in the midst of the storms and when I feel like my life is ripping apart at the seams. That Jesus actually died for me. About 16 years ago now, when Owen was, uh, oh no, it was longer, it was shorter than that, sorry. When Owen was almost two years old, not quite two years old. Uh, that's my son, for those of you that are visiting. When he was almost two years old, uh, he was given a peanut butter cookie in nursery, in worship. And we got out of worship, and he was having a horrific reaction. And it wasn't getting any better. It ended up where I had to rush into the hospital. And it looked as though, although I'm not a doctor, it looked as though he was growing worse by the minute. His entire body was swollen. He was having problems communicating And at two, it wasn't like he said a whole lot anyway, which made us as parents far more nervous and concerned. Matter of fact, it looked like his whole body was one gigantic hive. Jenny and I didn't even recognize our son. And we thought we were going to lose him. We thought he wasn't going to make it. And I remember in that moment thinking two things. I walked out, I called my parents, and I was just really emotionally distraught. And I remember telling my dad and my mom that I was having to wrestle with whether or not I believed what I had just preached. I had just told people to believe in Jesus, to encourage people to trust God, and here I am, not sure if my son's going to make it. And I had to think real hard about whether I was smoking what I was selling and whether I really believed what I just encouraged people to believe. And the second thing I started thinking about was this. I would have done anything to take this away from my son. I would have given every dime that I had I would give everything to know that he could live. But you know what? I could do nothing for him other than pray and believe. I had no power to do anything. I want him to be well. I want him to get better. But you know what? 
what Jesus is doing in this passage is he is talking to people who crave the gifts more than the giver. And he is saying, I am willing to die for you. I was sent by the Father so that my body would be like bread that would be torn apart. You can't do anything to save yourself. You can't do anything to determine your future. You can't do anything. You have no power to reverse the rebellion in your life. And I have come to do what you can't do. Take me. What Jesus is saying to the crowd is the same thing he's saying to us. It's the same thing that he will always say. I am the gift and I am the giver. I alone am the gift and the giver. And every gift that you have is supposed to lead you to the giver. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are good and you are so patient. We thank you that you are committed to maximizing who you are in our lives. And Lord Jesus, you know how so often we get caught up with the gifts and we never trace them back to the giver. You know how powerless we are. And yet here you stand, offering yourself for us, that we might live in accordance with your cross and resurrection every day, that you would define everything about us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make yourself larger in our lives, and that where you have blessed us with amazing gifts, we pray that we would turn those back to you. And that we would crave you more than anything. For your glory I pray. Amen. So as you follow him this week, know that God's blessing is on your life. That what Jesus has done means something for your schedule this week. Things that you have on it and things that you don't. So receive his blessing. And try to live this week as if you actually believe it's true. The Lord your God is going to bless you. And he is also going to keep you. This week his smile is upon you and he is going to be gracious to you. This week forever and forever and ever his presence is with you. And one day he will make you whole. He will reunite heaven and earth because our Christ is alive. Amen. Go in peace.